Okay, if you would please turn in your New Testaments to the book of Mark. I'll be reading Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Well, that's two. Did I write two, Bob? Or... Oh, I'll check my text later. We'll see if I did. We'll see. Okay. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. King. Lord Jesus, I ask that your Holy Spirit be strongly upon me and upon us, and that you help me teach. You help me unfold what you meant when you said the kingdom of God is at hand. What that kingdom is and the implications of it for our lives. Do this to the glory of your holy kingship, the glory of your Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <coughs> Question to you right now. Do you belong to the kingdom of this world? Do you belong to the kingdom of darkness in which you were born? Or have you traded in your allegiance to that king by entering the kingdom of God? The answer to that question has huge implications right now, particularly for the time in which we live. Because we're in a time where there is a tsunami just rolling over America, this country, with its new sexual morality that is blatantly and purposefully anti-Christian anti-biblical sexual morality. It is anti the kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish. Not just in the culture, but there are laws that are being made and will continue to be legislated against those who hold to the sovereign king's commands and his teachings about reality. And all who are in the kingdom of God are called to be faithful as Christians, faithful to our king and faithful to that kingdom regardless of the political and the social circumstances in which we live. Just as fellow brothers and sisters within the kingdom of God back in the second and the third centuries came up against sporadic times where 
you need to confess, and this is governmental and cultural, Caesar is your Lord and not Christ. And some brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God refused and it cost them their very lives. And so too today. We are not to cave in to the social and the legal pressure of the kingdom of this Christ-hating world. Particularly with all of its sexual revolutionaries everywhere. This past week, in our state of California, the assembly passed Bill 2943, which will, in effect, when it goes to the Senate, and most likely they will also pass it, and it will become law, which will, in effect, make it against the law to sell a book or to pay a pastor that represents traditional, orthodox, historic Christian teaching on gender or on sexual orientation. And our King, who has mercifully brought us who are believers into His kingdom, He told us plainly, if they hated me, which they did, and they murdered him, they will also hate you. And so for every soul in this room, there is nothing in all of your life, in all of your interests, in all of your aspirations, nothing is more important than your entering the kingdom of God now, in this world, in this life. And that reality of coming into the kingdom of God may very well more and more be very costly to you in this present evil age. And so it seems crucial to grasp the meaning of that term the kingdom of God. It's everywhere in the Gospels. To grasp its meaning, its implications for our very real everyday lives. And so that is my task over the next few weeks. This is week number 25 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. After 24 weeks going through redemptive history in the Old Testament, we finally crack open the New Testament. And right off the bat, this idea of the kingdom of God is everywhere. It just jumps out at you. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So let's just start for a moment with the word kingdom, basileia in 
the Greek New Testament, Malkut, in the, in the Old Testament, it, it's the idea of a realm in which a sovereign, a king, reigns. It doesn't necessarily have to be a physical realm. It is a realm in which a king is reigning. And in the Old Testament, before we get to the New Testament, there were three phases to this idea of the kingdom of God. The first is that God is creator. He is sovereign. He is, by definition, king. And it's all over the Old Testament. He has a right to do whatever he will is king. And the Psalms testify to it again and again. His kingdom rules over all. Or your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Or your for you, Lord, are the Most High, and you are to be feared. You are a great king over all the earth. God, the creator, the non-physical, the spirit who is God is king. And we have seen the second stage of the kingdom where God gave to his people Israel earthly kings. And it was a judgment upon them for rejecting God as king. Okay, go to it. See how it works for you. But if you turn from me, I will destroy your kingdoms. And in history he did. The northern kingdom first, then the southern kingdom of Judah. Their monarchies wiped out. But we have also seen over the last few weeks that with the second king of Israel, the creator, the God of heaven and earth, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, made a promise, a covenant with David. That David, one of your descendants, a human being, will come. And he will reign on your throne. And I will establish that throne unendingly in righteousness forever and ever. The promise that a son of David will come and establish peace, victory, and righteousness on earth. So there's that Old Testament. You open up your New Testament. And right off the bat, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, it's time for God to break into this world in an unprecedented way like never before. And Jesus comes preaching the fulfillment of the prophecies of the covenant of David. But as you read your New Testament, as you read particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it should strike you, if you're paying attention, how come these first century Jews look utterly baffled at him? Why is it when Jesus starts to teach, they're looking at him like they speak in another language? What are you talking about? What's happening on the earthly realm? Here's the question. 
in Jesus' earthly ministry and the proclamation of the kingdom. Why is there such disconnect with the people of the book? That's the question. And to get at the answer, it starts this way. What are they thinking? What kind of structures do they have in their head in their expectation of the Son of David coming? And you will say, the Old Testament. No, it's not just that. Just like it isn't for you. You have theologies constructed out of you reading the Bible, others feeding them to you. And so the background in first century Judaism at its core had to do what was happening and developed within that 400 year period of the close of the Old Testament and the rise of John the Baptist and Jesus on the scene. In their intertestamental literature were theology and religion, Judaism, was being developed. So remember, as we have seen, the Jews now since the exile, they have been being ruled over for hundreds of years by pagans. They're not free in that sense. They have not had a, their own monarchy for 600 years. And during that time, Theologies and eschatologies, eschatos means last, eschatology, the teaching of the last things. They had theirs, what they're looking for in the future to come. They were being developed. Because one thing that happened with them is that the idea of God ruling and reigning presently in their lives, that was lost. It just got lost in their subjugation and their suffering. And everything was pushed to the future. They're ruled over by the Babylonians and the Assyrians and then the Greeks and now the Romans. But because of the ceasing of prophets in the land for 100 years, 200, 300, goes into 400. Their own oppression by the pagans over them they started to ask the question, why do we, God's people, continue to suffer? If we've cleaned up our act, which they had to an, to an extent, in a way that they didn't used to, after the exile, we've cleaned up our act. We don't go after worshiping pagan gods anymore. We've developed religion and Judaism and synagogue services and everything. Then why do we still suffer at the hands of pagan rulers? How does all this fit? It's the question they're asking theologically. And the answers to those questions are found in their writings during that intertestamental period. In Jewish apocalyptic literature, in the pseudepigrapha, they're answering those questions. And there are different kinds of eschatologies, how it's going to happen, but there's some basic, general, unifying themes. Just like for us Christians today, what's your eschatology? What's your chart look like for the future second coming of Jesus? You pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill? 
Okay, if you're pre-mill, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? I don't know if they still even have bookstores anymore. We used to sell these big charts, dispensational worldview on how everything's going to happen and all the scriptures. And They had theirs. And it goes basically something like this. God clearly in the Scripture with the prophecies of the Son of David, this messianic figure, this saving kind of figure from all of our, all of our enemies and troubles, God has predetermined a, a set number of years for this, and this is a key term for them, and it should be for you because you see it all over the New Testament, for this present evil age. And then it will come to an end. How? The kingdom will come. And the king will deliver Israel, us, God's people. The wicked will be punished on, another key term, on the day of the Lord that we're looking for. And then it will usher in the other key term. It will usher in the age to come. This present age versus the age to come. Good, righteousness wiping out evil. It's this eschatological dualism, twoism. We live now, and there's going to come this cataclysmic, one fell swoop, rule and reign that God has promised to wipe out demonic powers and Satan. And if you're in the first century, Rome and our enemies and establish his kingdom on earth. So that's the backdrop. That's the context that Jesus goes into in his public ministry. So to, to get a feel for this disconnect because here's the bottom line where we're, where we're going to go is what's happened in the New Testament. Jesus did not come the first time the way that any of them had their charts set out for. And so to feel that tension, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. So here we are now. John the Baptist's ministry is essentially wrapping up. He's going to be thrown into prison but in the meantime, Jesus is baptized by him. Weeks later, he burst on the scene preaching, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what are they looking for? They're looking for, really, the Son of David to come with fireworks and destroy the devil and Rome. And so one Sabbath day, Jesus went to church. He went to synagogue, and he was a reader that day. And he stood up to read, and you pick up in Luke 4, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay. You know how this day ends, right? They tried to kill him. Throw him off a cliff. But what's happening in their heads is, what in the world are you talking about? In other words, the kingdom of God came in a way they and nobody expected. It came, as Jesus said, in fulfillment. It is here. This scripture is fulfilled in your very hearing as I read it. It came in fulfillment of the prophecies, but without consummation. The totality of everything that was prophesied about a new heavens and a new earth. And all of the order transformed and no more evil and sickness and pain. He's saying it came with me, Jesus, the person. It's being fulfilled. But in other aspects of it, it's still not yet. Make any sense? Pretend you're a first century Jew, religious Jew. Read the scripture and you hear it read, and you know scripture by heart. It gives you an anticipation for the salvation that God keeps promising to bring to you, his people. And so you know Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 6 by heart. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Okay, that's what you're waiting for. That's what John the Baptist is thinking. He's a first century Jew. And yet he finds himself in prison under the nuthead Herod, waiting to be put to death. And he's getting confused. What's happening? If Jesus is the king, if he's the son of David, if he is the one, he did not come in the way that John thought he would, nor the first century Jews as a whole thought. So much so that John says, look, I, he grabbed some disciples, followers, and he sent them to Jesus as a messenger because John wanted to get his questions answered. Jesus. Are you the one or not? And so we read this in Luke 7, starting with verse 20. 
And when the men had come from him, they said to Jesus, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And then Jesus answered them. You can hear Isaiah ringing in his words. He answered them, Go. Go back to John in prison and tell him that what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus' answer is, yes, I am the one. I am fulfilling Isaiah. I am the son of David. I am the bearer of the kingdom, of the rule and the reign of God himself in breaking to this earth in the sense that I, Jesus, have the power and the authority to work salvation. I possess it in my very person. And thus, with the coming of Jesus, there was a realm, an unseen kingdom or realm established. And so Jesus would speak, even right now, not you Pharisees, just sit back over there, but, but tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom. They're entering this rule and this reign, saving reign, right now, while you're not. The coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus at its core in the New Testament, we see, is this confrontation with the satanic forces of this world. The word Satan is only used 36 times in the New Testament. 16 of those, almost half, are in the Gospels in Jesus' ministry. When you count up all the miracles that are recorded of Jesus, in other words, you don't count them twice if Matthew, Mark, and Luke have the same one, there are 35 miracles recorded. Half of them have to do with exorcisms. Confrontations with demonic spirits being cast out and delivering people. And that confrontation matches somewhat of their expectation of good and evil and a conflict with the unseen satanic demonic realm. The inbreaking of the rule or the kingdom of God that would come and purge the world of Satan, evil, sin, and establish the reign of God, the kingdom of God.
this present evil age and then the kingdom of God comes, the age to come. And Jesus comes, and He comes in order to clash first and foremost with the spiritual realm, the demonic realm. Turn to Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, starting with verse 22, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed, and they said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, prince of demons, that he cast out demons. And then Jesus undoes that stupid argument and concludes this way in verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then you should conclude this. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And yet, what we get in the New Testament is that Satan, he continued to have power, continued to do his work, continued during Jesus' ministry, and has continued ever since up until this day. And he will continue until the end of the age, which is still not yet. You can say it this way, what we see happening historically in Jesus' first coming is that instead of waiting till the end of the age, we're in one fell swoop with a word as we, we hear, a sword out of His mouth will absolutely destroy all satanic power and evil like that. Instead of waiting, He has entered this world in His incarnation to declare the kingdom of God has come. Not to utterly destroy yet, but to curb Satan's power. While this present evil age goes on and He builds His people, His church, His bride. In other words, the kingdom of God in the New Testament has this twofold manifestation. The end of the age, cataclysmic remaking of heaven and earth, absolute separation of righteousness from unrighteousness and good and evil is going to happen. And it's biblical, it's Old Testament, and it's New Testament. But that still hadn't happened yet. What happened first was Jesus' first coming and His ministry and His death and His resurrection. And in the first coming, He came not to destroy, but to bind Satan and have given to Him now as King all power and all authority. Therefore, church, therefore, kingdom subjects, go and preach 
the gospel. The kingdom of God, that is the age to come, where Jesus will rule in true humanity in the resurrection for which he has already been raised. He will rule over all those whom he's raised from the dead unto salvation and eternal life in perfect peace with no more enemies and no more sins. That's happening in the future. But in a sense, that promise, part of it, a taste of it, is broken off and come back into history. And Jesus is first coming and remains here today in the spiritual realm where he allows Satan, demonic powers, sin, evil, and suffering to remain until the ushering in of the age to come. This idea is explicit in the Gospels as Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God over here as it's very present in right here, right now, in your midst. The time is fulfilled, not then. It's being fulfilled now. Fulfillment without the totality of the consummation of it, which remains for the future. The kingdom of God is here. But it's still not yet. And as you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to understand that will help you understand what's being said in his ministry. That is the tension that exists in the New Testament. He speaks, in one moment, the kingdom of God is here. It's in your midst. People are entering it. And in the next moment, the kingdom of God out there in the future, when it comes, which it hasn't come yet, let me just, I want to give you just a little taste of, of Jesus' words in the Gospels this way. For instance, when he speaks of the kingdom that is not here yet, that is still future, that will come, in Luke 19, 11, he says this. Well, we hear this. As they heard, the disciples heard these things, Jesus was saying, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed, wrongly, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. It wasn't. It's future. Or in Matthew 23, 34, Jesus says, Then the king will say to those, then, not now, then, in the future, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Future. 
or Luke 13, 28. Jesus says, referring to the future, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Future. But this is the same Jesus in His ministry who says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Or, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and you better know that the kingdom of God is upon you. Or, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom is in your midst. So the kingdom of God is, at its core, what? It's the power, the authority. It is the reign of God, specifically in and through Jesus the Christ. With His coming and this very moment in this room, the kingdom of God is here right now. It is a spiritual, non-physical, real realm that any person may enter if they want. To enter in order to be ruled over, this is key, savingly by Jesus. Oh, He's King! And he has enemies. But to be in the kingdom is to have him as your saving king. That's now. But it's also not yet. The kingdom is still not yet in the sense of its consummation. In the sense of the bodily resurrection of all human beings and separated the unregenerate from the regenerate. In the sense of the reorganization of all physical creation where there will be no more pain and no more tears and no more suffering, but unhindered joy in God for those whom the King reigns over savingly. That future kingdom of God in a sense is broken off come back into the present and real sinners are being changed because they are entering an unseen spiritual realm this coming of the kingdom of God in two stages his first coming through Mary to suffer and to die and to rise was totally unexpected. He'll do the second. It's coming. But they had no grid for it. After his resurrection, he's walking with two or more of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? And they are so dejected. And they don't know it's Jesus. And listen to their words. Because they killed him. And they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And he's not, because he's dead. 
and John the Baptist in prison. I don't get it. Jesus, are you the one? Or are you not? Their theological, their eschatological charts, this eschatological dualism, this age, age to come, and it happens in one fell cataclysmic swoop, never accounted for Isaiah chapter 53. And you can read all that's still extant or available of the intertestamental literature. They never understood Isaiah 53 to be referring to the son of David, the Messiah to come. And there was no place for it. Most of you know Isaiah 53. I'll just read a few verses of it. If you don't, Isaiah 53... Four to five, seven hundred years before Jesus was incarnate. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. They never understood that there were two comings, not just one. They did not understand the Son of David to come as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And just I'm going to read one more because I, I, I like this passage. Because <laughs> it gives me as a sinner great hope. In Mark 8, 31 to 32. And Jesus began to teach them his disciples, his apostles, that the Son of Man, and they knew he referred to himself here, that he, Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. And watch, watch. Mark says this very, and then he says, Mark says, and he said this plainly. Love the next line. And it makes sense to Peter's theological worldview. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. No! doesn't work this way. They didn't realize that the kingdom of God, the right to rule savingly over sinners being delivered from wrath, that that had to be purchased. It had to be won. W-O-N. By suffering in death. They should have known. 
Jesus responded to those disciples on the road to Emmaus this way. Oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe all. Not just some. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into His glory? And beginning with the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, and then all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom and its inauguration dawned with Jesus' coming. And it is here and it is present. But it's still not yet in its consummation, and its many other promised aspects to it. And we're probably going to have, I think, at least three more weeks on the kingdom of God and Jesus' unfolding and teaching on different aspects of it. But, so for this morning, as I'm wrapping up, though, here we are. We're 2,000 years later than Jesus' public ministry about the kingdom of God. And that teaching, the teaching of that reality that there is a rule and there is a reign of God with Jesus as king, and it's a realm of salvation that is invisible, is utterly relevant for today. The kingdom of God is here. Many are oblivious to it. They're still sleeping in bed right now. Or they're riding a bicycle on the strand. Or they're sipping a cup of coffee at Starbucks, reading the paper on this wonderful Sunday morning off. And they're constructing bills in the California Assembly and Senate. It is a warfare. And at its core, it is a warfare of truth, of reality, of meaning, and of purpose. It is a conflict being initially spurring from an unseen demonic realm clashing with an unseen kingdom where Jesus reigns realm and He has His people. And it's both happening down here right now in this present evil age. But let me speak to individuals. What's most important? Children or old people? Make sure that the kingdom that is not yet, 
that will come with King Jesus' second coming. Make sure you are part of that kingdom. How? Enter the kingdom now. Use Jesus' words. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. Pay attention to truth. Especially in a world of deception and religion. In the name of Christianity, pay attention and with your heart strive to enter by the narrow gate. Make sure you're there. Desire the king more than you desire money or gold or love or marriage or the prospect of children or anything else. How? Here's Jesus' counsel. Unless you become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. That's how. Strive to find your childlike rest in the arms of God through the King and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Like a child, trust the gospel. Trust His Promises just as a little child trusts her daddy. That's how. And that day, you know, Jesus talking to one of the leaders, a Pharisee, Nicodemus, he made a profound statement. And he meant it because Christianity is not a club by which anyone can just sign a name. It is a miracle of an unseen realm that invades a person's life and they find themselves in this unseen realm. And they're different. And that's why he said to Nicodemus, unless a person is born again, born of water, and born by the Holy Spirit, they cannot see, nor can they enter the kingdom of God. New birth is the power of the kingdom of God coming and invading your life by causing you to see and to, to recognize the treasure that the gospel is to you. Just like a child. Can't see it till your heart is converted to be like a child. I, I don't... I just have to do it. So with some of my family, we watched A Field of Dreams again last night. 
And there's a metaphor in that movie. If any of you remember the movie, I'm just going to assume, I'm just talking to you at the moment. Of course the brother-in-law couldn't see it. He didn't have a heart as a child until the end. And you couldn't see the ball players on the field. There's a movie, a metaphor of childlike faith. To those who are not in the kingdom, here's the message, whether it's to you in this room and the message we give to all. The king of the kingdom says, Come. Come. All of you who are without meaning and purpose and overwhelmed with your guilt and confusion or suicidal thoughts, come. And I will give you rest. And here's the truth. Every single person who wants the king to rule over them, having forgiven them all of their sins now and forever, and to be their joy, anyone who wants that can come into the kingdom. To be in the kingdom of God now is to have eternal life. The life of the King dwelling in you. And thus to be assured on that future day, long after your death most likely, to be raised and to enter in to the consummation of the kingdom promised throughout the scriptures. So strive every day, whether you've been in the kingdom for 50 years, Strive to have the king sovereignly, savingly rule over your life and over your child-like heart. Let's pray and worship the king. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, who is a descendant of David, who is the promised one, who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who is our forgiveness, our atonement, our high priest who is our resurrection and our life spiritually now physically then oh break our hearts a broken and a contrite heart you'll never despise smash our hearts where it needs to be into seven-year-old trust in this glorious gospel. We love you. And King Jesus, we worship you. Amen. Let us stand.